The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. When you put all of the cumulative findings that I make in my report, including the complete inadequacy of the health provision made for these men. None of these men have had torture treatment. They're aging rapidly because of the torture they experienced in the past. Many of them have severe illnesses. All of these men need independent medical care, which they don't have. And so what did I find? I find that we still have cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment in the detention facility. And that's a concrete finding by a special rapporteur who has seen it firsthand, had the unique opportunity, thanks to the US government, to interview these men without interference. And so I think that's a pretty powerful finding in terms of saying the US still has work to do on Guantanamo. I'm Matt Gluck, research fellow at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare podcast, November 8th, 2023. Vanula Neolin completed a productive six-year tenure as the UN Special Rapporteur on Counterterrorism and Human Rights last week. Among other issues, she examined how financing counterterrorism and new technologies used for counterterrorism affect human rights. She also analyzed the protection of human rights in several locations with different political contexts, including visits to Guantanamo Bay and detention facilities in Northeast Syria. I sat down with Fanula to discuss her experience as Special Rapporteur. We spoke about the downstream harms of counterterrorism financing, her conversations with Guantanamo Bay detainees, why gender should be a meaningful consideration of counterterrorism policy, and much more. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 8th, Fanula Neolin on counterterrorism and human rights. Vanula, welcome back on the Lawfare Podcast, and congratulations on wrapping up a very productive tenure as the Special Rapporteur on the Promotion and Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms While Countering Terrorism. To start us off, could you describe how one is chosen for this role and the responsibilities that come with it? Sure. No, I'm. it's a really nice time to have this, uh, to come back to Lawfare as I wrap up. This is the final, been the final week of my mandate. And so it's really nice to have the opportunity to think about it and come to an end with an interview. So I was appointed by the Human Rights Council. A special rapporteur is appointed through a vote of a UN political body by member states. That happens through a process of selection where 
you are you put yourself forward, but more often than not, people do go forward with the support of member states. Uh, in this case, I'm Irish, so um, the government supported my candidacy, although you are not appointed as an Irish special rapporteur, you remain independent. And you go for an, you have to go through a process of disclosure, a little bit like a judicial appointment where you share information around conflicts of interests and your background and you provide references. And then a committee of ambassadors, government ambassadors, there's a, a, a committee appointed by the president of the council who interview you and select, they create a shortlist, which is public. And then from that shortlist, the president selects, the, the shortlist is ranked, and then the president selects from the list. And that was how I was appointed six and a half years ago. Thank you for that context. So you've worked in other human rights roles in the past, including on behalf of the UN, and you've written about uh, human rights issues for decades. When you entered this role in 2017, what did you think would be most challenging about examining human rights in the context of counterterrorism in particular? So, yeah, I mean, much of my academic and policy career, I started my law career in Belfast in the middle, in many ways, of the conflict in 1987 in Belfast. I went on to do a PhD. I became a law professor, but my scholarly work had always been on situations of extremity, on violence, on conflict resolution. And I'm a feminist international scholar, so I had done quite a lot of work on gender-based violence and uh, sexual violence in armed conflict. And at various points through my academic career, I had taken periods of leave or I had gone into public life and sort of left academia, um, as many uh, in American audiences will be familiar with. And so I thought I had a pretty good sense of what the challenges were. For me, in uh, 2017, when I was appointed, I think I saw the major issue being legacy issues of the so-called war on terror and I was particularly interested in the problems of the normalization of the exception. And I, I see counterterrorism law as an exceptional legal regime. So I came in sort of with a sense that those were going to be the kind of challenges that I was going to deal with. But I think I quickly discovered that there were very different challenges than the ones that I had kind of come in with a preconception about from my scholarly work. And how would you describe the difference uh, between what you thought you were going to face and, and what you ended up seeing when you got into the role? Well, I think when you teach international law, you think you know everything about international law. But it turns out it's a little bit like teaching constitutional law and practicing in government that, you know, the actual day to day can be quite different from the from what you do in your classroom. And so I, I think I I'd identified a, a couple of things that were very different. One was that rather than dealing with the residue of counterterrorism 15 years after 9-11, what I quickly discovered is that counterterrorism, both normatively and institutionally, has been expanding vociferously across the world. So I imagined that I would be dealing with tail. And instead, what I found is that the architecture of counterterrorism, including at the United 
nations has just grown and continues to grow. And so the problem facing a special rapporteur is containment in the sort of face of mass expansion. The second thing I learned quickly was that the scale of misuse of counterterrorism, and that was really based on the communication function my mandate has. We intervene on individual cases as well as on sort of situations that the scale of counterterrorism abuses was far more entrenched and structural and widespread. And I came to understand that that was correlated to rising authoritarianism and backsliding democracy. And maybe the third big thing that I realized very quickly is that the interface between counterterrorism and new technology is having profound and negative effects on human rights across the globe. And I wasn't a tech person and I wasn't a tech scholar, but I quickly had to become an expert on tech. That's fascinating. So I, I want to get into one piece of what you said, which is uh, about some of the consequences of of counterterrorism that you maybe didn't anticipate, but that became clear uh, during your time serving. So you've written about you've written uh, in your role about the downstream human rights harms of many policies that seek to counter terrorist financing. Could you outline some of these harms that you identified uh, as special rapporteur? Sure. And so maybe the best and most comprehensive way in which I've been able to do that is that a year ago, with the support of the government of Germany and the Kingdom of Spain, I was able to launch a global study on the impact of counterterrorism on civil society and civic space. And I think it would be surprising to many of us to learn about the scale of restriction on civil society across the globe. And that crisscrosses democracies, non-democracies, East, West, North, South. And so when I undertook that study and I, I literally and my team and I traveled the globe, we were in East, West, Central Africa, we were in Southeast Asia, I was in India, I was in Ramallah in the occupied Palestinian territories, I was in Latin America, and I was in the Caucasus, we went all over the globe. And what we found is that there's just this massive and high correlation between the use of counterterrorism, including countering terrorism finance measures against civil society. So one maybe good example, last year, the government of Nicaragua shut down 300 civil society organizations on the grounds that they were all engaged in terrorism financing. And my mandate addressed this in the global study, but also in communications to that government, where it's quite literally unbelievable and not true. But states who lean into counterterrorism discourses or who use the language of countering terrorism finance have found a perfect foil for global criticism because everybody is rightly against the thing called terrorism. And that gives highly repressive states, whether it's a state like China in Xinjiang, whether it's the Russian Federation using extremism legislation to say that human rights organizations are engaged in the financing of terrorism when they take foreign funds. These are just some of the examples that speak to the spread 
the scale and the impact of misuse in multiple national settings. So countering terrorism finance is obviously still important for states. So how should states, in light of what you've seen, shift their approach toward countering terrorist financing to continue to target terrorist groups without generating these harms? Well, I think there's a really simple answer to that. And this is one of the places where my mandate was very closely aligned with the FATF, the Financial Action Task Force, which is the uh, the body responsible uh, as a result of member states giving them that responsibility to implement countering terrorism finance standards, which are found in 40 FATF recommendations. And you don't need a human rights argument to do this work because FATF is very clear. If you're going to address countering terrorism finance, you have to use a risk-based approach. And that means that you don't treat all of civil society or every humanitarian or every political party as a per se risk for terrorism financing. You have to look at the sector and you have to take a participatory approach where you engage society as a whole in figuring out where your risks are for actual terrorism financing. Because we're not disputing that in certain countries, there are real risks around that. But when a state is using countering terrorism finance actually to do other kind of nefarious work, to shut down the political opposition, to make sure that humanitarians can't do their work, to prevent journalists from reporting, then you know that they're not in compliance with Recommendation 8, which is the part of the FATF uh, recommendations that apply here. You also know that they're not applying the convention uh, that we have, we have a treaty on, on the prohibition of terrorism financing. And we actually have a bunch of Security Council resolutions that say to member states, yeah, for sure, you have to address terrorism financing, but you have to do so consistent with international law, including international human rights law. So I, I, I'm really clear, states have all the tools they have. This isn't rocket science. It's actually not as hard as it may seem to be. The problem is that states are abusing these standards and that we're not adequately addressing that And maybe just one final thing to say about countering terrorism finance. And it's right, of course, that we need to look at the issue of the misuse of terrorism finance. But I would also say in my many, many country visits that one of the biggest problems I have seen in terms of terrorism financing is diversion from states to non-state armed groups who are engaged in acts of terrorism. So We actually don't talk about diversion a lot, but we talk about the financing space, which includes civil society, which includes the role of intermediary banks, which includes a lot of important things. But there's a huge piece of this puzzle, which is related to the regulation of corruption and diversion, which in my view is up in some ways much more problematic than what we're seeing um, in the kind of classic terrorism finance space. Could you describe what that corruption and diversion looks like? Well, a a good example, I'm going to take a government of Mali as an example. My mandate just uh, has visited, when I was special rapporteur, I visited Mali. It was still not, uh, it was still run by a democratic government. 
Um, but one of the problems in Mali was Mali is part of the Sahel region of Africa. We've identified uh, over some years, the global community has talked about a transnational terrorism threat in the Sahel region. But when you visit Mali, what you realize, what I realized very quickly was, first of all, that the government didn't have control over most of its territory and not because its territory was largely taken over by uh, transnational actors. That wasn't the case, but because it was failing to provide basic security across the vast territory that is Mali, leaving these massive spaces of insecurity and non-control for the state. At the same time, there were massive amounts of Western, particularly European, and uh, the global coalition against ISIL were also spending enormous amounts of money in arming, enabling, and financing the military sector in Mali. And that was a human rights-free exercise. It came without oversight of the security sector. And what we now know, of course, is that large amounts of that funding was being diverted and ultimately ends up in a coup in which the military, the unaccountable, non-human rights compliant military, actually collapses the democratic state takes over and decides it has a better customer in Wagner to help it do its work. So that's like that's an example I would say of an a sort of a layers of corruption, diversion, lack of accountability and lack of human rights compliance producing exactly the opposite result of what you say you want, which is what you say you want is to prevent terrorism, what you do instead is create the conditions that's likely to produce more violence. I see. That's very clarifying. Thank you. You became the first UN human rights investigator to visit Guantanamo Bay when you examined the facility beginning in February of this year. And you say in your report after visiting that you think you arrived too late to the facility in light of what has happened there over the last two decades. What had prevented UN experts from visiting Guantanamo Bay before you went? Yeah, I mean, I think probably one of the most, I don't want to say impactful, but perhaps symbolically important things that I was able to do as Special Rapporteur was to visit not only the detention facility, the report had three parts. I also met with uh, victims of the 9-11 Pentagon and terrorist attacks. And I met with many of the former detainees who've been transferred or resettled in third countries. And that visit came after, I want to say, a really long engagement by myself personally with the U.S. government across administrations. Um, I've always had a good relationship with the Counterterrorism Bureau, no matter which president was in power. And early in the tenure, uh, my tenure when President we had uh, President Trump in office, I had gone to the CT Bureau and said, I, and the State Department had said, I, I think for the U.S., the continuing albatross, which is Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, the continued rep reputational damage that it causes really um, deserves a different approach. And the visit didn't happen then, but it started uh, and it took us a long time to agree because the rules that require a UN special rapporteur mean that I would have to have full and fair free access to the site, that I could interview detainees, 
and that I could interview personnel, military, medical, and other personnel, all of that without interference or surveillance. And until the Biden administration was prepared to agree this after many years of negotiation, no other administration had been prepared to let a special rapporteur in. They, they were prepared to let you do the UN, the the US kind of, I might call it the 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 PR tour of Guantanamo, but not a visit on the terms of reference of special procedures respecting my privileges and immunities. So it took a long time to build trust. And I think it was trust building that delivered the visit. But I do think I came too late. And uh, quite honestly, every single man I interviewed, almost in the first or second sentence of our conversation said, looking at my blue vest, said, you're here too late. And they were right. What, what did you seek to reveal to the international community that wasn't clear before your visit? You mentioned that, that the special terms that, uh, that accompanied these visits gave you different access uh, from what was available before. Uh, so so what, what did you seek to illuminate that had been hidden before your visit? I mean, I suppose I started and our, the discussions and agreement with the U.S. government started from the point of view that the visit was intended to redeem what I would call the principle of access to all places of detention whether they be high security or non-high security. I visited many, many, many places of detention, and they're always high security prisons because I always visit persons charged or detained for terrorism. The idea that this place, Guantanamo, was different, that, that it set out this principle that no one had access to it. Frankly, as I had said at the General Assembly and the Human Rights Council in previous years, was a travesty because it allowed other states. It allowed China, for example, to say that no special rapporteur could ever go to Xinjiang, China, because the U.S. would never let anybody into Guantanamo. So we were feeding a practice of arbitrary mass arbitrary detention. We were creating exceptionalities that allowed particularly, I would say, authoritarian or backsliding democracies to say, well, if the U.S. won't let people into this detention facility, we're not required to let people into that detention facility. So I think that redeeming that principle as a matter of principle was really important. But I think, and maybe it it's revealed by the, I, I wasn't sure when I started the visit that my report would get much attention. To be frank, so much has been written about the detention facility and I and others have called for the release of the Senate torture report. As you know, we already have a thorough, detailed, substantive U.S. investigation, which remains hidden from view. And most of us have consistently said, allow that report to do its work, release that report. And in fact, the UN Human Rights Committee just reporting today on the US's report to the Human Rights Committee has called again for the release of the Senate report. But I think what I was surprised by, and maybe this is in the report, is how much I learned about the day-to-day -day lives of these men. I mean, it's in my report. They, they, they come, they came to talk to me shackled. It had been, I mean, I, the US government knows this. I, I meet every prisoner I meet, no matter 
who they are and in what prison, including, I would say, over the years, hundreds of ISIL prisoners. And no one is ever shackled in my presence. But these men, including men who are cleared for release, were shackled. No one uses their names. These men, again, the majority of whom now have been cleared for release, are called by numbers, which is an extraordinarily dehumanizing act. And as detailed in my report, the thin line between the torture of the past and the the conditions of the present almost doesn't exist for most of these men. And when you put all of the cumulative findings that I make in my report, including the complete inadequacy of the health provision made for these men, none of these men have had torture treatment. They're aging. They're aging rapidly because of the torture they experienced in the past. Many of them have severe illnesses All of these men need independent medical care, which they don't have. And so what did I find? I find that we still have cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment in the detention facility. And that's a concrete finding by a special rapporteur who has seen it firsthand, had the unique opportunity, thanks to the U.S. government, to interview these men without interference. And so I think that's a pretty powerful finding in terms of saying the U.S. still has work to do on Guantanamo. You wrote in your report that you urge adherence to international human rights law in detainees' ongoing plea bargain negotiations. What would consistency with international human rights law look like in that context? Well, I think, and of course, the plea discussions have now been suspended. So it's a little bit of an academic conversation for now. But I would say uh, one clear element of that goes back to medical care. It's very clear that if part of these plea agreements will involve individuals committing and confessing to responsibility for particular crimes, The corollary of that is that their conditions of confinement have to be human rights compliant. On the health side, that means that there has to be independence of medical care. It means things like mixed medical commissions. It means access to their uh, medical records, which obviously have evidence of torture, but you can't treat them for torture unless you know what happened to them. And it also means that they need rehabilitation. I think, as I said in my report, it also means, because there's a fundamental question if plea bargains are agreed, as to whether those things can happen in the site where these men were harmed. And my report makes clear that there are options available to the US government. That includes transfer under diplomatic assurances to countries who will uphold the fundamental human rights of these individuals as they serve out necessary sentences, if that's where the plea bargains land. Or it means making provisions to serve those sentences in military bases overseas, because as we know, there's a bar on their transfer to the United States. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, 
fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This summer, you visited detention facilities in northeast Syria that are holding approximately 60,000 detainees with alleged connections to the Islamic State. Could you describe who these detainees are and how they ended up there? Sure. Yeah, in July, in the crucifying uh, 50 degree heat of northeast Syria, my team and I were able to travel. We traveled first to Damascus because as a special rapporteur, I travel via the capital of the territorial state. And I traveled onwards to past the Euphrates and into northeast Syria. And what was, I think, both challenging and both important was no other human rights expert has had access to that territory. And while there are humanitarians present, the um, ICRC and UN offices like UNICEF, UNHCR and the World Food Programme, even their access is, I would say, constrained. And so I visited five places of detention, Al-Hol and Al-Raj camp, which hold the largest numbers of individuals. Al-Hol has uh, an enormous population. And then I visited Alaya prison, which in principle is said to hold Syrian nationals, but I was able to identify a large number of non-national adolescent children, boys in that facility. Then I visited Huri and Orkesh, which are two facilities that are termed rehabilitation centers, but are, in my view, places of detention because the boys detained can't leave. And finally, I went to Panorama Prison, which is the high security prison that listeners will know as the prison where the breakout or break-in of ISIL took place a year ago. Uh, or last January, it's not quite a year. And how do they end up there? Well, they end up in different ways. And um, at the fall of Baguz, so this particularly Al-Hol, let's start with Al-Hol, had been at one point in its long life, it had been a refugee facility or camp. And so there was the remnants of a refugee uh, capacity there. And as the fighting intensified between the Islamic State and the international coalition against Daesh and the SDF, many, many individuals individuals, mostly women and children, made their way towards that facility. As Baguz falls, the numbers fleeing to that facility explode exponentially. And that had been a facility that had been designed to hold at most a couple of thousand people and now holds upwards of the like the of 30,000 individuals. So it's it's not a camp, it's a small uh, city which is completely, it's a militarized, securitized place from which 
No one can leave. Mostly made up of women and children, but as my report notes, surprisingly, given the conditions in which the third country women and children nationals are held in a prison within a prison in Al Hol, there are also thousands of mostly Iraqi and Syrian men uh, largely roaming around pretty freely in the camp as I observed it in July. Could you give us a little bit of a clearer picture of the conditions in the various facilities? Sure. I mean, I'll start with Al-Hol and Al-Raj. Al-Raj was a separate purpose-built camp where the SDF transferred individuals, mostly third country nationals. So the people in Al-Raj camp include Americans. There's an American family there. There are Australians, South Africans, Brits, Canadians, uh, people from Trinidad and Tobago, Egyptians. These are some of the nationalities I met. Everybody lives in a tent and... I I can only describe 50 degree heat in the middle of the desert and it's dry and it's arid. There's no shade. In Al-Hol, the camp grew haphazardly. So the sort of, there aren't even straight lines. There's just these sort of tents upon tents upon tents. You've got hundreds of kids running around. There's, there's literally nothing to do. And they sometimes throw stones at the cars because it's a, I guess it's a pastime in a place where that's something that you can do. I, I walked through part of that camp, obviously with my security team, but we were able to talk to people whose despair at their lack of process. I mean, not a single person, man, woman, or child, some of whom have been there since 2017, have been subject to any legal process. I mean, zero, nothing. Water is scarce. Food is trucked in. It's a life of despair and structural violence. And anyone who thinks that it will keep make us safe to stay, to keep people and to have thousands upon thousands of children grow up with no access to school or life beyond a, a gated prison, I think we're just going to wait for the next eruption of violence over the horizon. Um, so those are a little bit of the camps. It, it, I, I can talk about the prisons, but that's a that's a different kind of facility, Matt. I think a very different kind of facility. And how how are they different from the camps? Well, I mean, I would start with probably the most notorious prison, which is the prison called Panorama Prison, which. To be honest, I had not anticipated having access to because it is, it's a high security prison that contains, at least as they've been described, what are believed to be the, the persons who were the fighters who were directly involved with ISIL and who were then captured and brought there. What's unusual about Panorama is that it's a, it's a brand new prison. It was largely built by the United Kingdom with support by other states. So compared to anything else in the region, it looks like a Rolls-Royce prison on the outset. It has, you know, spanking new walls, there's plenty of space. It's built in these in a in a model that optimizes security. There's showers, bathrooms. It looks frankly on the outside really good. The problem with that prison, though, when I visited, is that I was told and I saw firsthand with my own eyes, because I 
observed a sizable number of the prison population is that TB is rank in the prison. And so at least 50% is the, is the SDF's estimate. My estimate puts the numbers closer to 70% of the prison population has TB. There's no treatment for TB in this prison. There's no separation of the people who have TB from those who don't. And the other thing that was, as my report says, and leads me to find that, in my view, war crimes are being committed in that prison, is that I was told that there was a problem with food supply. But what I observed firsthand was emaciated men with protruding bones, sunken eyes and clearly being starved to their end if there's no food and there's no treatment for TB and at least 70% of your population has TB, then that's a death sentence without any legal process. And I should say there are 700 boys from third countries. And my concern is that they include a number of Western states, including possibly U.S nationals in that cohort of boys. Let's talk about those third country nationals. So you you discuss in your report the slow progress of repatriation and several recent judicial and UN committee decisions regarding repatriation have rejected uh, certain countries' approaches to repatriation. Could you discuss uh, where the current state of repatriation from these detention facilities in Northeast Syria and what the most prominent roadblocks are? Yeah. So look, I've always been clear that the single most and the only effective solution to the problem of Northeast Syria detention is repatriation. And that's complex because there are many states, there are two major populations, Syrian and Iraqi. Right now, we're making decent progress with Iraq in that about 5,000, just over 5,000 Iraqi nationals have returned home. And I think it's really important to acknowledge the positive role that the U.S. government is playing in facilitating and enabling return and, frankly, making it clear that governments have to live up to their obligations. And the U.S. has also been extremely proactive in returning its own nationals where it identifies them. And so Iraq is moving, but even with the pace of return in Iraq, given the sizable number of Iraqis, we're looking at like at least five years before we get everybody home if we're on the current pace of return. So even in Iraq, we need a major upstep and investment in the Iraqi government's capacity and willingness to take home their nationals. The Syrians, right now, we need a different solution because it's not safe for Syrians to go home for the most part. And so the second largest population is effectively stuck there until we come up with a political solution with the government uh, in of the Syrian Arab Republic. But third country nationals, frankly, in my view, states have no place to hide on their responsibilities. And what I see is a kind of citizen dumping where states who, on the one hand, profess their commitment to things like the Women, Peace and Security Agenda, give long speeches on the children in armed conflict agenda on the sunny day that it falls in New York, but leave their children and their women 
to rot in these conditions in northeast Syria and leave other countries particularly and other entities responsible for them. Now, we've made some progress. When I started in 2017, countries were saying we're not taking a single person home. And that was, for example, the position of the French government. And if you look at the Fran France's position on return, it's shifted enormously in the past five years. And it's now the country that probably has the highest number of returns in Europe. But we have a whole bunch of recalcitrant state. And I'll, I'll name our neighbor to the north, Canada, which is one of the champions of the children in armed conflict agenda, but has simply failed to take home almost any of its nationals, except those that court decisions have forced them to take home. And that's really where the heat is right now. We have another case pending before the Canadian Supreme Court. We have two cases pending before the European Court of Human Rights. We have a case pending before the Australian um, higher courts. We have a case pending before the Dutch highest courts. So what's forcing governments, unfortunately, to move is courts. And I don't think that that's good or smart policy making. You don't want a court to force you to do something that even frankly may not be on the terms that you want to do it on from a security perspective. And so it's long past time that these countries again, who profess their undying commitment to human rights in theory, but don't walk the walk or talk, they talk the talk, but don't walk the walk in Northeast Syria. It's past time that they did what they need to do. And not, not to imply that the obstacles are monolithic um, for all of these countries, but does it seem from your work that the primary limitation is domestic politics for these countries with respect to repatriation? Or is it concrete security risks? What, what does it seem like is really holding back these countries from repatriating uh, their, their citizens? So it's true. I think we would be ill-advised to say it's, they're all the same. And there are countries like Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan that have brought back hundreds of their nationals. And in fact, it was in both of those countries when they brought back their like really large um, airlifts from uh, with the with the assistance of the U.S. government back to the to those countries. But I think what we see in a number of European states and, and I would say we Western and other states is an unwillingness to change the rhetoric. The vast majority of the people in the camps, including third country nationals, are children. And the vast majority of those children are under 12. So really, in a way, you're making an argument about victims of terrorism. You're making an argument not to return victims of terrorism, children who, through no fault of their own, were brought to this territory or born in this territory. And to me, the most profound shift, and I've seen countries make this shift. I've seen France do it. I have seen Finland do it. I have seen Ireland, my own country, do it. I've seen uh, countries move the language of bringing people back to their responsibility to the child, to their responsibilities to ensure uh, accountability. When Germany brought back people, it argued that it would do so so that it could hold people responsible for serious violations of international law. And what we've seen in the countries who've done that is that their publics tolerate and accept it. 
and they're secure more than anything else. What has always amazed me is that the resistance is not coming from the security sector. I have spent the last six years in close dialogue with the intelligence services, the military and the police forces of multiple countries. And that is not where the resistance lies. The resistance lies in the, pol in the politics of exclusion, in the politics of othering, and in the politics of using the language of terrorism in sweeping and ill-defined ways that cuts against the rights of the most vulnerable. In this case, your, your citizens, primarily children, located in a conflict zone overseas. That's very interesting. I want to shift our focus a bit to a, a topic that you mentioned early on in our conversation, which is gender. When most people think about counterterrorism, gender isn't necessarily front of mind. So what caused you to focus on gender in the counterterrorism context? And what about gender makes you think it, it must be considered as a central component of any effective counterterrorism effort? I mean, I think my experience of gender is rooted from growing up in a violent society. Um, I grew up and spent have spent most of my adult life in Belfast, Northern Ireland. And I witnessed firsthand the that the cost of terrorism is often unequally borne by women. And those who do the care work in a society that is deeply violent bear the brunt of the cost of both terrorism and counter-terrorism measures. I observe that in relation to victims of terrorism in the society I've lived in for most of my life. I observed it with the victims of counter-terrorism when people were killed arbitrarily by the state. They generally tended to be men who were targeted in that way. Uh, when we looked at patterns, including, for example, the ill-fated decision by the United Kingdom to engage in practices of internment, detention without trial, in 1973, the vast majority of those arrested were men and those left behind were women. So it had always seemed to me that without ex explicit articulation, that there was a gender to the way in which both terrorism and counterterrorism played out. And I include men in that category. I mean, when I say gender, I don't just mean women. I mean men as a constitutive category. So when I look at Northeast Syria and I see hundreds of boys, adolescent boys, being separated from their moms violently, that's a gendered act to those boys. If those boys were girls, we would have the same kind of response that we had when girls were kidnapped in Nigeria. We would be saying, this is a gendered practice and there is a particular kind of gender harm being caused to girls being kidnapped. And I would say there's a particular kind of gendered harm that follows from not treating men as victims or as civilians in situations of conflict, including young boys. So I think that's permeated. It's permeated my scholarly writing. I think the other piece of this is when I became special rapporteur, I was the first female special rapporteur on counterterrorism. And I hope I won't be the last female special rapporteur. But I invariably walk into rooms where I'm the only 
senior woman. I'm the only principal who's a woman in the room. There are plenty of women sitting in the back row, but the decision-making in the intelligence services, in the military, in the police is overwhelmingly male in almost every society or country I have visited. And that's a gender too. And it affects, in my view, the way in which decisions get made, the way in which we think about what is and is not a threat, the way we respond to threats can often be deeply gendered. So whether it's countering terrorism finance, in which I've addressed the gendered implications for women of particular kinds of CFT measures, whether it's detention practices, um, whether it's the impact of counterterrorism on civil society, which, as it turns out, in most societies is largely gendered female because of the limitations on access to public space. Uh, Counterterrorism is a highly gendered terrain. And I hope that one of my legacies has been to elevate and indicate how much that's true and actually provide a roadmap to change it. Did you notice any emerging recognition of the importance of gender or increasing recognition of the importance of gender in counterterrorism uh, during during your work as special rapporteur? Or is it still uh, something that is not meaningfully considered by most who work in this field? So what I would say is that the rhetoric has changed completely. And I think what's really interesting is that we've seen this shift, and I would call it the shift to adding women and stirring in counterterrorism as opposed to mainstreaming gender. But if you look at, for example, Security Council resolutions in the past two years, if you look at the Global Counterterrorism Strategy Review, which has uh, which culminates in the adoption of a resolution at the General Assembly. This happened in June this year. Gender is now um, recognized in that strategy as an important element of the global counterterrorism uh, space, including the ways in which gender functions to facilitate the recruitment and use of people into terrorist organizations. But I think if we look at what's happening representationally, I would say the spaces have not changed that much. It's a little bit like the women, peace and security agenda at the UN. We have lots of great words. There's lots of good words out there. And I'm not saying the words don't matter. But I think the action of like fundamentally rethinking security policy and practice through a gender lens, making those spaces like making good public policy, whether it's in public health or in counterterrorism, that kind of policy just works better if you have a diverse group of people in the room. And the problem I see is that we often Um, have very few women or gender diverse persons in the room. So my global study, for example, has really illustrated the way in which in many societies, countering violent extremism provisions are used against LBGTQ and gender diverse persons. And so I think the language has shifted at the kind of global elite space. But if you look at practice, I would say there's been almost no change. 
Another set of issues you focused on during your tenure were the increasingly prominent roles of certain technologies in counterterrorism and the effects of those technologies on human rights. Could you describe some of your most salient findings in this area? As I said, I started my mandate with uh, as someone who had not either been a scholar of new technology or frankly not having a good technical understanding of technology. And the first deep dive I took was on the use of biometric data collection in the context of countering terrorism. And the thing I would stress is that in multiple contexts, whether it's biometric data collection, whether it's API and PNR, whether it is the use of armed drones, Countering terrorism has always been the rationale to do early adoption of new technologies and that that early adoption is generally human rights free, rule of law weak and has very little to zero oversight. And so really coming to terms with the scale of biometric data collection premised on CT made me understand the importance of addressing the increasing role that surveillance technology is playing, again, also facilitated and enabled by counterterrorism discourses. And there, my work on spyware, I think, is particularly noticeable where I've been really clear at commercial spyware poses an existential threat to the regulation of both free societies and civil society within them. And we urgently need global regulation. And if we cannot do global regulation that is human rights compliant, we may find ourselves in the position where the only option to regulate its nascent and brutal threat to to democracy and the rule of law is a complete ban on the use of that technology. And I'm really clear, self-regulation by spyware companies is not the answer here. We need to do what the Europeans are doing, which is strengthening dual use and export controls. And we need to do what I suggested states do, which is adopt a liability model for spyware. Maybe the last thing I'll say is the very last paper I released as Special Rapporteur was on the use of something called the Go Travel API PNR data system that's used by many, many states in the uh, screening of passengers as they travel on planes and increasingly is being applied in places like trains and, uh, and maritime travel. And that's a technology that no one's paid a lot of attention to the impact on human rights and governance. But in my very last report, I make clear that we need to have an urgent pause on the use of this technology because of its downstream misuse by governments to harass political dissidents, to prevent civil society from doing its work, from harming journalists and humanitarians. And I, I think this is going to be the biggest challenge in the year ahead. years ahead. Uh, we're starting to see a real conversation about it, including in the AI space with the president's executive order uh, and thinking in this space. And so this is the place, one of the places that we will have to watch the closest in the years ahead. Well, Fanula, we will leave it there. Thank you very much for your important work the last six years as Special Rapporteur and for coming back on the Lawfare Podcast. Thank you. 
The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Pati Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.